have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hey, you movie-obsessed motherfuckers, and welcome to Scoring at the Movies, the podcast that drops every other week and examines old sports movies in our droppings. Wait. Wait, what? Oh, anyway. In some cases, like this week's film, the sports movie isn't so old. And we'll caution you now that we'll spoil the living daylights out of this flick. I'm the Formula Un racer who will guide you through this odyssey, Ryan Ellis. And here's my intrepid co-host who sports some hot, nasty, badass speed, quoted by Eleanor Roosevelt, Chris DiGregorio. <laughs> oh, thank you, Ryan. Now, you know that wasn't really Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, right? I think it was. Oh, well. This is a documentary, isn't she, it? Oh, yes. It is factually accurate in all ways. And we all know that Eleanor Roosevelt is renowned for her love of hot, nasty, badass speed, but I even what, so... I don't know why you're speaking right now, because it seems like a fact. <laughs> well, is this fake news now? That fake news! Yeah. Fake news. So does that make me Ricky Bobby? I felt like I was more of a Cal Naughton Jr. type of character. Magic Man. <laughs> Am no? I Will Ferrell then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, before we get going to the podcast, we got some color of money, runs, hits, and errors, which I'm going to call them from this point on, I think. Uh-oh, what'd we do? George Balabushka. Remember the Balabushka pool cue? Well, it's George, and he's an actual Russian pool cue maker. Summer of George. <laughs> it must be such a high-end brand that that's why we Luddites didn't know what we were talking about when it was brought up on the phone. So you're saying it costs more than $50 on Amazon to buy a Balabushka? Might be a few. That might be why I've never hundred. heard of it before. Yeah. Okay. It's way of our pay grade. Also, you asked about the best actor thing, because Paul Newman won Best Actor for Color of Money. Yeah. And I knew that James Woods and Dexter Gordon were nominated for their movies. I said James Woods should have won for Salvador. Dexter Gordon was nominated for right. Round Midnight, it's called. The other two nominees were William Hurt in Children of a Lesser God, which is a good performance, and Bob Hoskins in Mona Lisa, which I saw but don't remember that well. So Newman was second best out of those five, I guess, at least. So you're saying William was a little hurt that he didn't win that year? He won the year before, so he couldn't have been too hurt. <laughs> he won for Kiss of the Spider Woman. Way to walk all over my bad dad, Joe Grain. I'm sorry. And the <laughs> I'm rest doing of those, my best. Yeah. The rest of those guys never won ever. They haven't, and I think some of them are maybe dead. Anyway. The fact that won. Bob Hoskins didn't win for his role in the Super Mario Brothers movie is a travesty. Not even nominated. A travesty. No nomination at all. And also you wonder about those sets, because it was nominated. Color of Money sets were nominated. A Room with a View won for their sets. That's not surprising, because old English stuffy films almost always win the Oscar for their sets. Well, I can't blame them for that. I mean, the color of money sets were appropriate, but Oscar-worthy. <laughs> what was it, a real down year? Every movie made was just made inside a cardboard box, except <laughs> for these two. And also, one more little note. Two weeks ago, or I guess it must be four weeks ago with our schedule, mm. about Major League Baseball team payrolls. I talked about Four Angels in the Outfield, where everyone ranks, and I said that the White Sox, A's, and Rays were all under $100 million, and the Red Sox and Giants were over 230 Wait, now? This year. So I looked at that to link to it, and Wait, then the numbers... The, the Giants are over 230 No, no, yeah, the Giants and Red Sox are both over 230 Who are the Giants paying this year, other than Madison Bumgarner you know and Buster Posey? It's things like paying, well, the Red Sox at least, paying Pablo Sandoval to play for the Giants, ironically. I think that's what that is. Uh, but that's a fluid thing, because the numbers have changed, and suddenly, I think every team was over $100 million when I looked at this, or something like that. They weren't at all what they had been before. 
Well, like the revenue sharing is huge now, where it wasn't at the time of the Angels of the Outfield, right? So every team now has to spend a certain amount to mm. qualify for the revenue sharing stuff, which is like tens of millions of dollars worth of money. So even the notorious Tampa Bay Rays, who might average 3,000 fans a game, might spend 80 to 90 to $100 million, because if they don't, they're going to lose out on $40, $50 million of mm. revenue sharing funds, and they're going to end up in the red, right? So... I am shocked that some of those teams are over 230 because of the quote-unquote luxury tax that exists. Now. Those two, I think, the only two are actually paying the luxury tax. The Dodgers aren't, huh. despite their payroll. The Dodgers aren't? I think that's what I heard. Isn't that why they got Matt Kemp? For whatever reason, somehow getting him meant they were under the luxury tax. I don't understand how this shit works at all, man. I like baseball, but I don't really care. I know about the finances to a degree, but I don't care that much. Yeah. But anyway, the point is that the numbers are very fluid and they change a lot, even within the span of two weeks. Yeah. All right, so back to this week's film, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, which was released by Columbia Pictures a little over 12 years ago on August 4th, 2006. And speaking of high dollar values and fluidity of money, if this film taught me anything, it's that you can go from earning 22 point something million dollars in a single year to being a destitute pizza boy like that. In the blink of an eye, you're on the street. Just like his team, led by Michael Clark Duncan. Oh, Lucius? Yeah. Why are they suddenly working at a car wash? This was a successful team. They were good, too. They should have had some kind of good job. Apparently, they work directly for Will Ferrell. Not for the team themselves, but for Will Ferrell. So if he's out, they're all out. Yeah, if he's broke, they have to be broke as well. I wonder if it was as hot on August the 4th, 2006 as it is in this room right now, by the way. I'm sweating from excitement and overheat. Also, our turkey dinner earlier. Yeah, and digestion. Yeah, yeah most of the blood is in my guts. We right might now, fall so. asleep during the podcast. We had a turkey in August for some reason. It isn't Thanksgiving, it's not Easter, we just had a turkey here. We were just so thankful for this movie that we had to have a turkey to we celebrate. We even said grace, we didn't say grace. Dear baby Jesus, thank you, <laughs> eight pounds, seven ounce, baby Jesus. The movie was a pretty good sized and very quotable hit. You're going to hear some quotes in this podcast. And I'll do the nutshell right now. Family appears enthusiastic about imminent ejection from eating establishment. Okay, that's not bad. At the end of the film. I get it. All right. It's supposed to miss the point of the movie, so... Listen, it did. I, I thought I might be able to compete with you in these nutshell segments going forward, but I tried to come up with an off-base nutshell for this, and I couldn't do it. I have another one I just thought of right now. What's that? I want to go medium speed. I'm not a fast driver. <laughs> 110 in the 100 zone, 120 at the most, that's fine with me. That's still speeding. I, I really fast. I really hope that three-second silent pause remains in the final edit. <laughs> that's all I can say. Well, listen, one of the things I was going to say about this movie is that if there are two men who are more qualified to review a movie about NASCAR, about racing in general, I defy you to find people more qualified than we are. Because we are known for driving high-performance machines, the two of us, right? Or watching the sport on television, which I don't think I've ever done. Maybe for five, ten minutes in my dad's house here and there. He likes to watch it, so incidentally seen it at his place. You know me, I'm always out there jacking up the Johnson rod or... Nitricizing my carburetor, or maybe circumventing the mainframe, or something. I'm a real gearhead here. And when you win races, do you suddenly have the inability to speak? I don't know what to do with my hands often, so they might float around in front of my face, which is great for podcasting and for racing both. Why did he not have the ability to speak when he wins his first race? This guy never shuts up in the rest of his life. But for some reason, he's just terrible. I guess it's maybe an homage. Maybe that could be what it is. Maybe they saw some NASCAR driver who won a race and was that bad. But it was a weird scene. I think it was an homage. I mean, that struck me as just like a general sporting homage. When you first shove a microphone in the face of an athlete and say, question A, give me an answer, and they basically give you the bland, 
uh, you want to play good, you hope you play good. But it wasn't even that good in the interview, though. I know, but I think that's what it was playing at. I just love the floating hands. He doesn't know what to do with himself okay. <laughs> in front of the microphone all the time. That's great. So be dazzled that we have at the start of this podcast, everybody actually got it right. I think they did. Got it more right, I should it. say. I love that quote. It was your idea to put that in the opening. Well, I'm a very smart man sometimes. <laughs> Not now, mind you. I'm full of turkey. We're falling asleep as we speak. A few more numbers. The as movie got the audience. <laughs> the movie got seventy-one percent of critics on its side and Rotten Tomatoes, and seventy-three percent of audiences. So not great, but not bad. And it was twelfth at the two thousand six U.S. box office. Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest, the second one of the pirate series, was easily number one. Well, that makes sense. I'm actually surprised that it's that low. Twelfth. That was not a great year at the box office. Actually, Pirates of the Caribbean was far and away number one, but I forget what number two was. Cars did well that year, for example, but it was not uh, a great year. Not even a great year at the movies in general. I was looking at the Best Picture nominee, for example, and the winner was The Departed. Other movies like Little Miss Sunshine, The Queen, they're fine. I own them, but they're not great. Yeah, I guess and you didn't like The Departed. We talked about that on Color of Money. I was going to say that. Yeah, it's one of those Scorsese movies I'm not a huge fan of. It's a good movie. But not one of his best. Not one of his three or four or five. We said that last week or two weeks ago. I would rather watch Talladega Nights than The Departed. Oh, okay. So what do you think? What was your overall view of Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby? Such a long title. <laughs> I love that title. And I think it is a ballad. It's a story of a man growing as an individual, learning what is really important in life. It's a deeply emotional tale and one that I think everybody should watch at least once. I wept many times. Oh, me too. It's touching when he finally gets his daddy back. More than once gets his daddy back. And it has one of the greatest on-screen kisses of 2006. Between two dudes. A bromance, at last, that actually have the guys kissing. What is the name of the song that is playing at the end of the movie? When they're foot racing it out, Ricky Bobby Chariots and, of Fire? and, and John it Gerard. It's not Chariots of Fire. Okay, no. I don't remember them. I really enjoyed the soundtrack of this, generally. Being the child of the, I mean, I guess born in 81, so technically a child of the 80s. But growing up in the 90s and into the like, early 2000s, that's the period that shaped my musical taste. Love the music in this movie generally. Including We Belong. Including We Belong. We belong to the whatever we We belong to each other. (laughs) We believe. It's great. I was gripping his balls through all of that. (laughs) That's how we got that high. The sad thing is not to help me sing in any way. (laughs) We just (laughs) caught up in the moment. We talked about a kiss by guys, so I might as well grab your balls. Honestly, two of the guys that I enjoyed most in this movie had some of the smaller parts. And you mentioned Michael Clark Duncan earlier. Mm-hmm. I love his Lucius character in this. He pops up as the straight man, not in a sexual way, <laughs> right? given the tenor of this movie generally. But he's always the straight-laced dude. Reese Bobby, Gary Cole is mm-hmm. the actor, right? Yeah. The guy from Office Space. Yeah. Yeah. I need you to come in on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> He's so great. Good character actor. There's one or two scenes that don't really work for me too much. They're a little over the top. The first getting thrown out of Applebee's throws the fit. Why'd you do that? I had to blow it up because things are getting yeah. too good. That kind of stuff, I could take or leave. But some of the smaller scenes with him after he plants the quote-unquote kilo of Colombian bang-bang under I didn't the really car. like. That was a bad scene, I thought. Under his own son's car? Come on. Oh, no. I mean, it's stupid. But after Ricky peels out... He's left standing on the lawn with his two grandkids, and one of the now-reformed grandkids says, Grandpa, will you uh, teach us some life lessons and tell us stories of your childhood? He basically I'm still said, grabbing his balls, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and he basically tells him, tell you what, I'm going to go get another beer. Why don't you kids go dig a hole? And they <laughs> say, well, somebody didn't love you when you were a child, or something like that. And he's like, good call. <laughs> Here, this is worth a nickel. Those kinds of throwaway one or two line scenes with him... He just nails so mm-hmm. well. 
I laugh more at those than almost anything else in this movie. Although the chemistry between John C. Riley and Will Ferrell, this was their first movie together, and they hit it out of the park. Although I liked Step Brothers maybe even more as a flat-out comedy. Yeah, but they made that because of this. Well, of course. Right? Let's work together again. Yeah, well, Adam McKay, he directed Step Brothers as well, right? Adam McKay? Well, as you keep talking, I'll check it out. You're not talking. I'm interrupting. I'm sorry. Damn it! He directed... Let's see. We're scrolling through. This is fascinating radio. Yeah, Step Brothers. Yes, right. He did yeah. Step Brothers. Then the other guys with Farrell again, Anchorman 2. Everything he's done has had Farrell in it until he did the big short. Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, the other guys, Anchorman 2, and then the big short for Adam McKay so far. They were so good together, he wanted to do another movie with just the two of them paired up, and I think that was the result of it. And you're right. Those two are great, and they have some great moments. There's aspects of... Will Ferrell's performance, which is pretty typical of him, along with Sasha Baron Cohen, where they take it maybe half a step further than I would like them to, and it's a little bit too much at times. McKay could have fixed that in post by just cutting some of it out. Yeah, exactly. It's that whole sort of improv thing, which both he and Judd Apatow do so much. McKay's got Farrell and Riley and, I guess, Cohen and his camp of people that he works with over and over again, and Apatow has his people like Rogan and Franco... And both of them make movies that are arguably too long because they have the improv scenes, as good as they can be, go on and on. And maybe it's still funny, but the scene's over, and yet it still keeps going. Yeah, and I think that hurts some of their scenes for me. Some of the scenes with Will Ferrell stripping down Mm -hmm. to his underwear at the blink of an eye and running around screaming and all that. It's funny, and then it goes on, it goes on, and Mm -hmm. there's a point where you're like, okay, I get the gay, let's move on now. And actually, after it probably should have already ended is when you get the real highlight moment in that whole scene where he's asking for Tom Cruise's help after he asks for God and, what is it, Jewish God and all those things he says. Later on, when the scene probably should have ended, it's, help me Tom Cruise! Yeah. I assume that was a dig at Days of Thunder or something, right? The fact that he's he's calling out Tom Cruise. Well, also, it was the year before, and actually it might have been the same year they made this movie, come to think about this, came out in 2006, they probably made it in 2005-ish when Cruz seemed to go over the edge. He was promoting War of the Worlds, and that was when he was in love with Katie Holmes, and uh, was also doing that whole sort of, I know about whatever it was with Matt Lauer. <laughs> Matt Lauer, who knew? But I know about these things in medicine, Matt. You don't. I've done the research. And that was that same year when they would have been making this movie, or right around that same time. So maybe it was also a dig at Tom Cruise turning into a bit of a dick. Tom Cruise had never told anybody anything about his personal and private life, and suddenly around the mid-2000s it becomes, let's learn everything about the guy because of his Scientology stuff. You know what's interesting? We just did a podcast about Tom Cruise. And he's come up again. <laughs> I don't think we've spent any time at all talking about Tom Cruise's personal life we in didn't. Scientology. It's <laughs> but it's come up somehow in Talladega Nights. The great thing about movie podcasting, you can branch off into things that have nothing to do with anything else. My favorite line from that movie, or not that movie, that scene rather, did come from John C. Riley. Don't let the invisible fire burn up my friend or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. My favorite quote in the whole movie, though, is when you see Ricky Bobby promoting things. If you don't chew Big Red, then fuck you. <laughs> I did like the Blackhawk 9000, no, though. The right. combat knife or tactical knife, whatever right. the hell it was. Some of the outtakes were great, too. The post credit scenes where they're doing the same shtick, right? That mm-hmm. presumably cut out. My favorite of those was the infomercial they're recording. <laughs> we're here to talk to you about a very important plague that's sweeping the nation. Packs of roaming wild dogs that have infested our cities and are taking over. It's so stupid. Now, I did say that Michael Clark Duncan was one of my favorite characters in this, and it's strictly because he is the character that always manages to keep the straight face throughout all of the ridiculousness. Mm -hmm. The best example of that, Ricky Bobby post-crash, 
he's in recovery and believing himself to be paralyzed. Right. You know, play, That's play, a fun scene. Playing the uh, paraplegic, paraplegic, yeah. but the basketball, right? The wheelchair basketball, and he's right. kicking people with his legs while pulling the ball away. And then, yeah, the scene in his room where he's just talking with his own leg. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it, Ricky Bobby. Michael Clark Duncan plays that so well because Ricky Bobby's going, "You want to know what my life is." And he's cursing his kids, hoping that, and then finally Michael Clark Duncan snaps, and don't you put that bad mojo on me, Ricky Bobby, don't you do it! And then Cal turns to him, you're being too mean, and he said, no, 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 he's always crying. <laughs> one thinks of Michael Clark Duncan as a comedy character, but he's, well, he's actually funny in Armageddon about eight years before this, he's, he's one great. of the comic relief guys in that movie. And you talked about improv, that whole scene where Ricky Bobby then says, all right, let me show you what my life is, and he stabs himself in the leg, yeah. they're screaming and running around, and then Michael Clark Duncan's trying to stick the second knife into his leg, <laughs> and pry, pry out the first, okay, cut around the meat, cut around the meat, <laughs> <laughs> and Ricky Bobby's screaming out, this is going down a bad path, I love you guys. But that was all improv, right? And you was can, it really? It was. Okay. It was filmed not really thinking to keep it in the movie, and if you watch that scene as it fits between the preceding and then the next scene the quality of the recording the visual is way worse during that whole like, oh. minute and a half long stretch they recorded it once for shits and giggles thinking it's not going to make the movie but everyone loved it so much and they were just cracking up and right. watching it that they kept it in and which is one of those improv things and apparently Michael Clark Duncan because he famously was a gas driller that's how he got to be so huge because that's what he did. He manned those huge rigs before he got into acting. That's what his role was in Armageddon, too. He was one of the exactly. guys that was doing that kind of job. Yeah, so he got that massive frame just from working in that field for so long. And I think that's what they actually did. If their drills got stuck, they would drill down to the uh, side and pull it out. So that was his improv, was let's cut around the meat. Let's get the second <laughs> knife in to get the first knife out, out of his leg. You have to like tip your hat to a lot of characters in these movies. Sasha Baron Cohen, somebody who plays so big, usually, for him, this toned it down. This is underplaying the big one. This way, is yeah. underplaying for That's him. True. Are you watching What is America that's just been on for... A, well, by the time we post this podcast, it'll be, I think, maybe six episodes. But Bev and I have seen two or three of them so far. I've seen the first two. The best character is the Mossad agent, the ex-Mossad agent. <laughs> I was in the Mossad for 13... I mean, I wasn't in the Mossad for 13 years. <laughs> I don't know if the show is entirely working, but I get what he's going for. Of course, Borat is his most famous movie the same year as this, which was, I think, an even bigger hit than this was, and it cost even less than this did. So it was yeah. a hell of a time for SBC. But what do you think of his performance overall in this? I didn't have a problem with it, but I thought it was a little overrated. I didn't know who he was when this came out. I'd never heard of... Well, maybe I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen... What's it called again? Ali G? I'd never seen any of that. Oh, uh, that Ali G show? And I think this was before Borat came out, I'm pretty sure. Like you, I wasn't a big Ali G fan or anything. I enjoyed Borat at the time. Don't think it holds up now, really. But in terms of this movie, for him, this is underplaying it. Mm. And I thought largely he did a good job. I think he's going for obnoxious, but not to the point where you instinctively dislike him. He's playing the arrogant Frenchman. And it just made me think about post-9-11, Iraq invasion, freedom fries the villainization of the French yeah. in America. Who can we make the most easily dislikable villain while not really being threatening so much? Can't be a terrorist, obviously. Yeah. So. so you've got a gay Frenchman and that's yeah. your quote-unquote villain. Bit and of a cliche. It kind of works. Well, it works, but it's a bit of an easy shot in the dark, though, too. This movie is all about the easy shots that they're trying to make, right? There's nothing <laughs> difficult about it. 
but I thought he did a good job of pulling back where he could have gone too far. When he shows up initially at the bar and starts playing the smooth jet. By the way, I like that they cut to that scene and Cal Naughton is just randomly dancing in the middle of a <laughs> redneck bar for no reason while Ricky Bobby's telling him to keep going, keep going, don't you stop, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the smooth jazz comes on. It's a great little segue for no good reason. I was looking up, by the way, while you were talking there, and Borat did come out a few months after this movie, so I definitely had never seen Sasha Baron Cohen on the big screen in my life, or I guess even the small screen until I saw this okay. movie. So he hadn't had his big coming out party yet, No, really. it was November, and this movie was released in August. Okay. He could have been a total dick. He takes down Ricky, pins his arm to the table, and he's saying, say I love crepes. He goes, hey, say you love crepes. And he's never, okay, well, say you say you love thin pancakes. You know, it's a fair compromise. And all of his teammates are like, oh, it's pretty good. You know, they're really tasty. I think it's a fair compromise, Ricky. So he plays rational. He's there because he legitimately wants to lose, and he views Ricky as a valid competitor. He has fun with it. <laughs> You made me spill my macchiato. <laughs> I'm not so sure that SBCs are like great at accents. He <laughs> was way over the top. I'm not saying the accent is accurate. <laughs> but I think he does what he needs to do in the role. What's important for that character is that you want Ricky to succeed. If Ricky is somehow more obnoxious than the Frenchman, the movie's in trouble because you don't want him to win. But, at the same time, Ricky has to be obnoxious early on, mm-hmm. because that's who he's supposed to be. That's and the, that's the comedy. Yeah, that's the comedy. That's the juvenile character he's meant to be before he comes to the epiphany and grows up a little bit. So it's a tough thing to do, and I think in order for you to root for him, Ricky that is, that you need a villain that is, like you said, both kind of non-threatening, but is obnoxious enough that you root against them. You know what's funny? There isn't really a villain in Anchorman, but the movies have the same arc. Right down to the whole sort of, I've got nothing, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. What am I going to do? What happened to the $22 million he made last year? That's what I want to know. Maybe that's a play on people like Mike Tyson who make so much money and then end up going bankrupt. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you think of Chip, the grandfather character of this movie, who only shows up, I think, in maybe three scenes total? I saw the movie a while ago now. I forget who Chip is. He's the elderly grandfather. At the beginning, he just shows up at the family dinner... Oh, right, okay. Where yeah. uh, his wife is ordering no. every fast food. Leslie Bibb. Leslie Bibb. Oh, God. Yeah, she's... Bev a... and I covered her in Iron Man, and she's even hotter in that, but she's definitely out in this. She's now Sam Rockwell's, I guess, girlfriend, maybe fiance. I don't think they're married. He mentioned her in his Oscar speech this year. Really? Yeah. Huh. She is an attractive woman. Mm-hmm. And a pretty good actress. It's not easy to make Amy Adams the unattractive... She's like... wasting this movie. She wasn't a star yet, the way she is now. I just saw Arrival again last night. All these people that I've seen in multiple movies lately. I saw a lot of Michael Douglas movies lately because I saw Amy and the Wasp and happened to see Falling Down with Bev and happened to see The Game with Bev. Anyway, Amy Adams. Yeah, she's kind of wasted this, I would say, as the love interest. She barely is in the movie until maybe towards the end, I suppose. More than she doesn't else. have anything to do, really. Yeah. I mean, she has her forehead signed by Ricky when he's on an autograph tangent at the beginning and she has her Tawny Katane moment in the bar when she gives him the inspirational speech. Right. And that's about it. But yeah, Chip is the old man. He tries to chastise Ricky and Leslie Bibb's character for raising Walker and Texas Ranger mm-hmm. to be bad kids. They basically tell him to go suck a lemon. And then later on, when Ricky has his falling down moment, he loses everything, and Cal sure shows up and takes over his place at home. Ricky finds out the bad news. Oh, your marriage was an empty, hollow shell. It was a cruel charade. And I didn't know that. That whole moment that happened... And then the weird old man sitting in the corner, and he just goes, 
Hey, Ricky, just remember, the field mouse might be fast, but the barn owl sees at night. And then <laughs> and laughs maniacally in the corner. And that's about it. I think that's the entire character arc, and it has no purpose at all, but it makes me laugh every time. Cal Norton just turns to the camera and says, that was pretty creepy. <laughs> it's those throwaway moments. That's the McKay I'm a juvenile man. That's the McKay Farrell style. Uh, Do you know McKay plays the driver who doesn't want to race in the beginning of the film? He's the one that ends up having a burger or whatever it is, a hot dog. Oh, is that McKay, the guy that's just having a hoagie? And then that's what gives Ricky Bobby's opening. Then I gotta go take a shit and I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go fast. If you ain't first, you're last, and I don't care if I'm last. I guess he feels like he'll get paid regardless. <laughs> you know what I didn't understand about this? And maybe I missed something, because I've seen this movie way too often. Going back to when it was out in theaters. I think I saw it three times in theaters. Really? Well, don't forget, I was 25 when this came out. I saw it once, and I've seen it, I guess, two times since. I think it's a three-star out of four movie. It's a thumb up, but oh, I'm, I'm not a huge saying, fan. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a great movie intrinsically, but it spoke to me at a time that... It was in your wheelhouse. It was. Anchorman was first, right? Mm-hmm. There was originally going to be a third Adam McKay, Will Ferrell movie. Anchorman 2. Yeah. But, but a whole different one, you mean? A whole different one. Mm-hmm. Except Brothers? No, the only thing that ever came out was like a spec script or something like that. Will Ferrell's going to be a porn star or something named Rusty Butt or Rusty Butte or something like okay. that. Ron Burgundy, RB, Ricky Bobby, RB, and then a third character with the initials RB, oh, okay. and it was going to be a three. Anyway, the point is, I loved Anchorman. I was a big Will Ferrell fan at the time, so this really spoke to me. Saw it a ton. What little actual plot there was, I couldn't figure it out because Dennett, the team that Ricky ends up racing for, mm-hmm. brings in the French driver, right? Jean Girard. Mm-hmm. He's on the same team as Ricky. Dennett Jr., who takes over for the father that hired Ricky and hates Ricky's guts, and he brought in Jean Girard, is actively working to screw Ricky Bobby over. There's never any explanation about why the team isn't really working together, because from what little I know about NASCAR is it really does revolve around the team. Mm-hmm. You wanted an overall points championship, then that's team points. And the cow helping Ricky win is played for comedy in this movie, but that kind of thing does happen in reality. Oh, it does, yeah. And it would help the team get that points championship. So I never really got how this was supposed to be working entirely, because Dennett was always actively working against his own driver while saying, I want to win the points championship. It made no sense to me at they all. They needed another villain on top of Jean Gerard, I guess. Or just get rid of the Dennett villain. Like, that whole arc where Dennett hates Ricky Bobby's guts so brings in the French driver. Just have the French driver show up. You don't need to explain Be his own man, his own team. Because later on he says, I came to America so you could beat me, Ricky Bobby, so that I could have what everybody wants, to go to Stockholm with my husband and develop a currency for dog and cats, right? (laughs) I don't know, that, that sounded more Polish than French. But you get the idea, right? Like, it's... He has a reason for being there that is totally separated from the whole Dennett hates Ricky Bobby arc of things. So, why? Ricky is drawn to assholes. His dad, his ex, well, wife, but then ex wife. Yeah. Cal's not an asshole, and they do reconcile. So maybe that's part of it. He's drawn to that asshole owner. I mean, yeah, I get that. You talked about his dad a little bit. The introductory, well, not, I guess not introductory scene, because there's a flashback moment at the beginning, but the first time that adult Ricky Bobby meets his dad, Reese, again, after not seeing him for ages. He's delivering pizzas at that point because he had his big crash and his flame out on a Huffy, which is a nice bike, boy. Okay. <laughs> you don't remember that line? No. No? Reese Bobby looks over the so railing? a long time ago oh, already. Man. It's been at least a month. <laughs> That's when Ricky ran over the cop in his truck so he gets his license taken away so he's delivering pizzas <laughs> on the Huffy bike and 
His dad looks over the railings. That's a huffy boy. That's a nice bike. <laughs> anyway, he's delivering pizzas and he opens up the hotel room door and Reese Bobby is sort of leaning against the wall with the beer in hand, standing there in his underwear. He's got like six other pizzas sitting there because he's been calling the pizza place all day trying to get Ricky Bobby to show up. And they keep sending other delivery men instead. Right. Does that mean Reese was just standing? Because he's striking a pose. Like, he wanted this sort of dramatic underwear-clad pose when his son walked into the room. So every time a pizza delivery guy was walking through the door, he was just waiting, leaned up against yeah, the wall, and that underwear pose. That's how I wait for my pizzas. Yeah, but you don't care who comes in. Man, woman, child, it doesn't matter. Also, it's not true at all. I'm trying to corral the dogs when the pizza comes because <laughs> they try to attack any food delivery guy. They're insane. I was paying the money and I'm corralling the dogs. In my underwear, though. This Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes the underwear hurts? Those I think that means you're me. buying the wrong size, right? <laughs> no, they hurt with their claws. <laughs> more exposed. Whoa. I'll have more reason to wear more clothing. One thing this did highlight for me is that we clearly are missing a key element to this podcast. And that is some kind of catchphrase. You know, shake and bake. Magic man, El Diablo, whatever the case may be, something along those lines. I don't know what. We can always fall back at Batman. <laughs> what if Batman was a race car driver? <laughs> and then the Joker was the other one. I'm not a good driver. I'm not. That's not bad. Thank you. <laughs> That's the best part of when I did the spark plug sponsor and the Joker voice, I think, was the I'm not. I'm not. I was thinking maybe we could go along the lines of sauce and toss. <laughs> no? Am I the sauce or the toss? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm the Zazz I, man. Don't forget that. When I make ooh, chicken, it's going to have the Zazz. Zazz on it. Zazz. Chris has loved that line for I don't know how many years when I said that offhandedly. I'm the Zazz man. <laughs> All right, fine. Maybe sauce and toss is not a winner. You can be the Zazz man. I don't what know where that leaves me. You can be Big Red, then fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I do like to cuss people out a lot, so that kind of for no good reason. For no good reason at all. I do think, by the way, you talked about Ricky, Bobby, and Reese in the early part of the film, that more children should be born in cars by slamming the brakes on to jar them loose. (laughs) (laughs) Jay Lynch plays the mother. She's pretty good. She wasn't really all that well known at this point. I don't know when Glee started, but it was around now. She'd been in Forty Year Old Version with the Apatow guys and the Feral guys and Apatow guys cross over sometimes. Steve Carell does. Yeah, one. But Jane Lynch is, I guess, more of an Apatow person. But she's pretty good in this movie. She's the one that actually corrals the kids and teaches them. The last scene of the whole film is her <laughs> reading a story to them. Yeah, she doesn't have a ton to do, but she's always good. And she's good in this. She institutes Granny Law. <laughs> oh, Granny, not my prison shank. <laughs> Jack McBrayer and David Koechner are other comedians that have been in a ton of movies since. I didn't know who they were at this time. McBrayer got onto 30 Rock. That's mm-hmm. what he's still best known for, I guess. And Keckner's been in a ton of things, including the Anchorman movies. Forgive me, I'm bad with actor names sometimes. Is he um, the sportscaster? Yeah. yeah. They don't have, I mean, McBrayer definitely doesn't have much to do in this movie, except to pretend to be dead for the That was pretty funny. I like that little moment. That was funny. <laughs> Where he's peeking around the corner. Uh, I like that. That was good. But aside from that, he barely has anything to do, nor does David Keckner, really. Well, they always say it about John Wayne, they'll say it about Jack McBrayer, that Jack McBrayer is playing Jack McBrayer. Well, yeah. I he mean, does the same damn thing in everything I've ever seen him do. And I think. With that shtick, less is more. He's pretty good in forgetting Sarah Marshall, as they put upon <laughs> newlywed. He doesn't like sex. <laughs> yeah, he is good in that. But again, he's not in it a lot, right? He's just mm-hmm. in it maybe five minutes Probably total, total yeah. the whole movie. Mm-hmm. There's some really great little 
guest spots in this. Did you spot most deaf and Elvis Costello? No. Cameos? No? They even poked fun at it in the movie. It's just before the final race and Ricky Bobby wants to go meet Jean Girard to make amends and say, listen, I'm coming for you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's the same scene where Sasha Baron Cohen does his Oscar speech and then gives the great no delivery of the line at one point. His character is sitting down to lunch with most deaf and Elvis Costello for some reason. Ricky Bobby comes through, grabs the Jean Gerard character, they walk off, and you actually ask him, Is that Elvis Costello and most deaf? And he just goes, No. And then he went, <laughs> Inexplicable, but. Probably improv as well. Oh, yeah. There's a funny twist on the tickets of the window thing we've seen in a lot of movies where Reese finally comes to the race, and you think they're actually going to have a heartfelt moment, but he immediately scalps them. Buddy, these tickets have been waiting for you for a long time. And then you think you're going to have that heartfelt moment, and a single tear starts rolling down your cheek, and then he immediately turns around and starts scalping the tickets. (laughs) Most movies would have him walking in and seeing the very end of the race, where they're on foot. And I read, don't they actually say in the movie, actually, that you can't win that way. You have to be in the fucking car. So they're both disqualified. Yeah, Kyle Naughton ends up winning the race. That's what it is, As the third place driver. I don't know if that was something I read online or if that was what's in the movie. The second you leave your car, you're disqualified, right? I think if you're not in a pit, listen, I'm not a racing fan, so God knows. Well, there are probably more crashes in this movie than in even real races. They crash a ton. The funniest scene, and it's in the trailer, one of the funniest scenes anyway, is the whole, help me Tom Cruise scene. But that's not the only crash, including at the end when the two guys have the crash and then they're foot racing with We Belong. We believe. <laughs> belong. We belong. Line. <laughs> Listen, I'm not a smart man, <laughs> but I know what pitch is. <laughs> I took this note way back when. I'm reading it right now. Is there actually a race ever held at night in Talladega Nights? Surely. I don't remember one. Wow. There's also no You thund- just blew my mind. There's also no thunder in Days of Thunder. Or if there is, I don't recall. There's rain in one scene, I think. But What? We have to cover Days of Thunder one day because what? that'll be juicy. There's so much bullshit and stupid crap in that. Again, Tom Cruise. Well, wasn't one of John C. Riley's first roles in Days of Thunder? Yeah. He's one of the, pit, the pit crew lead yeah. or something? Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I don't think there is a night race period and definitely not at Talladega because that's the ultimate race in the movie right? during the day of course during the day and in Days of Thunder it's Daytona they do use Days of Thunder's drafting move which in that movie is supposedly revolutionary in a Tom Cruise movie so much Tom Cruise in this podcast Top Gun has it too there's always a move that he can do that no one else even knows about in Top Gun it's putting the brakes on he'll fly right by yeah. in Days of Thunder it's all draft behind him and then pass him on the outside and they do that in this movie a lot they probably were doing it long before any of the cruise movies were out. Just like I'm sure pilots knew. Maybe it doesn't even actually work in planes, but I don't think they invented these ideas. But in his films, so much of the time, he was doing things that no one else even knew to do. The drafting, I think, definitely preceded that. And you mentioned Top Gun slamming on the brakes and the other pilots go flying by. They actually parodied that here, too, right? Well, Farrell's trying to evade the cops with his one kilo of Colombian bang-bang, and he slams on the brakes and the two cops go flying by, and then he hightails it in the other direction, right? So this really is just a Tom Cruise parody. I really think it is. Yeah, There's no pool being played, but... Well, they do make out on a pool table, don't they? There's a pool table, that's true. But it's a violent scene. When he gets harder than a diamond in an ice storm? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, we have a fox joining us. We couldn't do a podcast without at least one animal in the room. What did you think, fox? I thought it was okay at best. (laughs) We're in my room. Fox is more of a ballet or ice dancing fan. (laughs) One of the other big red letter scenes, and certainly was in the trailer, is the way too long dinner prayer, 
which is a fun scene, and it does have Leslie Bibb going, woo, and that was cute and hot. Yeah. But that's where they're praying to all the Jesus and all that stuff. That is one of the ones that carries on too long. It features fan favorite Chip, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, but beyond that, yeah, it's not great. It was great for a bit, and then it just goes on. It goes on too too far. Although I did really kind of enjoy the... (laughs) contractually obligated mention of Powerade at every Grace speaking for some reason. <laughs> that was probably the actual movie makers, not a joke, but we have to do this, so let's do it. Yeah, you know, you're probably right. I mean, there's a lot of product placement in this, but... Just as there is in real NASCAR, or Formula One. I don't think Perrier or Wonder Bread... Probably not. Probably not what? They're probably not actual sponsors. Oh, no, but in this movie, that's Perrier's Jean Girard's primary sponsor, mm-hmm. and Wonder Bread is Ricky Bobby's... Eventually, that's supposed to be funny, though, isn't it? Yeah, neither one of those companies apparently paid to be placed in this. Oh, movie. really? Well, good for them then. So they got a lot of free promos. Nice. Out of it. I did speak of promos. Well, though. I could use some bread right about now, Chris. I don't know about you. I'm full, but I could go for some fizzy water of some kind. <laughs> if only I had some. The over sponsorship of cars was really funny. Like he sold his windshield to Fig Newton. <laughs> <laughs> this is dangerous and inconvenient, <laughs> but I do love Fig Newtons. <laughs> And the money it brings. What about something that obviously doesn't age very well now, the homophobia? Do you think the movie's homophobic? I didn't think it was brutal, but I took a note, so obviously I thought it was. Again, this movie's already slipped my mind so much, but yeah. did you find it to be homophobic? It's funny that you mentioned that, because if you didn't, that was one of the things I was going to ask you. In going back to a lot of these movies that I do really enjoy from 10, 15, 20 years ago, and rewatching them now, given everything that's happened socially over the last 10 years plus, there are times in this movie where certainly... There are homophobic, maybe, elements. There's a scene where there's like a NASCAR Sports Center update. Rob Riggle's one of the two announcers, okay. and they're talking about Jean Girard, and they talk about his husband, played by Andy Richter. Mm-hmm. Again, one of those things that I thought they went a little bit too far over the top with, doing the whole gay guy married to another Frenchman who's a right. international trainer of St. Not St. Bernard's, sorry. German Shepherds, of course. Both announcers, when it's all said and done, look so stunned and awestruck. I'm like, yeah, that didn't age very well. But I thought they did a lot to play on Americans' homophobia. To mock it. To mock it, yeah. Yeah. More than they did trying to be homophobic themselves. When they're holding hands, Jean Girard and Ricky Bobby holding hands, walking through, and this is strictly a gesture of friendship and no way sexual kind of thing. They're playing on the homophobia. And likewise, when at first Ricky Bobby is totally disgusted by the notion of kissing mm-hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen. But he's the one that kisses him. At the end, yeah. Farrell kisses Cohen. Because earlier in the movie, before he has his big crash, Ricky Bobby is offered the chance. Kiss me once. Right, right here, right now, right. and I will leave and never come back. And he says, hell no, I'm never doing that. That's disgusting. What's wrong with you? And then by the end of the movie, yeah, he gives him the one big smackaroo on the lips. Now, granted, he's not a totally reformed human being. He says, okay, one's enough. But <laughs> it shows that... Growth there. There's growth. And they're playing on the fact that you guys are being a little bit ridiculous and homophobic. Chill out. And also, these guys belong together. Yeah. Although one of them is married, and the other one's going to probably get remarried. Yes. So for the time being, for a brief moment, they belong together. I didn't view it as wholly homophobic. I thought there were aspects of it that did not age well, and if remade today, I think better left out. But they did address it in a good way. What about the obvious poke at NASCAR fans and Southern people, the hick idiot kind of thing? I don't have a problem with that because, well, I don't know nothing about NASCAR. I'm, it's still stupid to say, they're all hicks. Of course they're not all hicks. I still actually, like I don't watch it, but I still follow to a degree wrestling. And that's the other one that gets mocked so much, just like NASCAR does. So. They're two entirely different things. 
I think they're similar though when the whole mentality comes down to well that's just stupid bullshit only dumb people like that only people that wear trucker hats and have 15 tattoos <laughs> I don't do any of those things <laughs> I only have 13 tattoos yes. and I only the, wear fedoras working on the 14th <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but the redneck impression of NASCAR fans, I think, comes from its origins, right? And being the bootleggers from the South that developed the racing out of having to rig up their cars to be faster and the law and blah, blah, blah. The Dukes of Hazzard thing, really. Yeah, yeah. So it was legitimately a sport that grew out of the South where there were some very regressive views a lot of the time. And Still maybe are. A large group of people that weren't maybe the most educated. And it was a sport that people could go to en masse cheaply and watch. It's also a sport you can have year-round in that part of the world. Florida, yeah. Georgia, whatnot. You so, can't race up here in November and December. Maybe in no. November, but certainly not in January and February. That plays into it as well. So I think it's not unfair to say that, you know, there might be this subset of fans. Now, that said, you and I have friends that are some of the most educated and progressive people in the world, and they love NASCAR just because they love racing. They're poking fun at a particular subset of American society, and I think... It's not entirely fair, but I don't know if it's entirely unfair either. Okay. Although, let me say this. I think, again, I rarely know anything for certain, Ryan. If you've known <laughs> anything about me, it's that. But there's a scene where Jean Girard gets introduced for the first time. Or is that at Talladega? I wish I could remember. Anyway, he gets introduced at a race. He's in the bar, isn't he? Not his introduction to the movie. It's one of the scenes where he's getting introduced at a race. Okay. There's supposed to be 200,000 fans there. And they all just boo him. Because his name is Jean Girard, probably. Yeah. He's supposed to be the villain in the movie. He's supposed to be hated. He's supposed to be booed. When they filmed that scene, they filmed it at an actual race before the race began. And they introduced Jean Girard. They didn't give any prompting to the crowd. Oh. Okay. Everybody booed him. Because <laughs> he was French. Another movie from 2006 that had undue or unasked for. Well, they asked for I guess. But they couldn't have expected it to happen in a good way. It was in Rocky Balboa. When Rocky has his big fight at the end, they're in Vegas. They wanted the fans to chant Rocky. And they did without even being asked to do it. I would do. So that was a big year for getting people to react the way you want them to, positively or negatively, in sports movies. But it speaks, I think, to the question you're asking. It's like poking fun at the redneck stereotype of... They fell in line. Here's mm. a French race car driver. We're going to boo him because he ain't American. They probably still he ain't would from now. America. They still right? would now. But everything must work out at the end because this movie does have a happy ending for everybody, really, everyone we care about, including his ne'er-do-well father his who's going to run out of that eating establishment at the end again or cause trouble and get kicked out I should say mm, Applebee's the movie is made by Adam McKay who directed and Farrell McKay who co-wrote it and I mentioned Apatow I'm looking at my notes I forgot he was one of the producers on this movie so you do have some of the biggest names in comedy since the early 2000s that all made this movie together maybe that's one reason why it was such a big hit you got the Apatow formula and the McKay formula apparently the pitch was Will Farrell as a NASCAR driver and that's all they said to the studio, and they got the money for the movie. <laughs> or at least got a budget to make the movie. When was Anchorman made? Two years before 2004, this? yeah. Yeah, so I think coming off that success, and Will Ferrell had had some other commercial successes. He's a big sports movie guy, too. We talked about that in the build-up last week for this one. He's made a soccer movie, a figure skating movie, a basketball movie, yeah. and also did that baseball tour, which is on TMN, and I still haven't watched it, but I meant to. Oh, that's not a movie, but it was some kind of TV special. Will Ferrell plays the field, or whatever it is, or called, plays yeah. every position. Yeah. All right, so the big question. We've been doing this for a few weeks now. Can you score at this movie? I say yes. Leslie Bibb fulfills all male hetero needs, and there's no logical reason not to have an erection or a feeling of warmth in a lady's leg area when Farrell is running around crazily in his underwear. It's true. Or for the fellows? Why not for the fellows also? You said it fills all the hetero needs. I think this movie fills all of the needs. You should be fucking while watching this movie, that's what we're saying. Or soon after. Well, let me put it this way. 
There are several moments in this movie where Ricky Bobby, at the very least, scores during the movie. Why not everyone else? I mean, you got Jean Girard at one point posing topless on the cover of a GQ magazine, which, by the way, had a sub-headline reading something along the lines of 12 tips to carry on your illicit affair or something (laughs) like that, which I thought was a great little dig at the French again in this movie. Mm -hmm. You got that. You got the Ricky Bobby, Jean Girard, will they, won't they, tension going on, the Leslie Bibb, John C. Riley, Will Ferrell, love triangle, the Amy Adams aspect of it. One man steals another man's wife. Whew, this like movie's said. drenched, just like Color of Money was. And Rolf Ferrell just can't keep his clothes on. Yeah. So All that was missing was Michael Clark Duncan ripping off his shirt and flexing once or twice, and you would have had every man's dream in there, I think. Will Ferrell always has to get naked in his movies, and he does almost get, well, maybe not fully naked, but old school was only a few years before this. All right, so we're fans of the movie. You seem like you're more of a fan than I am. But if we do Days of Thunder, there'll be more to talk about. And I'm also really hot at this point and a little tired from the turkey, so maybe we should wrap. <laughs> it's so fucking out of here. Yeah, I'm a little sweaty. Anything else you got to say about this movie? No, I like it, man. Well, it's on Netflix. If you want to see it, fans, and if it still is there by the time we post this podcast, check it out. You probably already did if you're going to listen to this podcast. When Scoring at the Movies kicks back into it in two weeks, we'll do our first football movie as we anticipate the start of concussion season and review any given Sunday. Now, was that Batman or was that Al Pacino? (laughs) What would Pacino as Batman sound like? We'll save, we'll save it for next week. <laughs> no? Well, I did some Pacino before we started recording. You said it was pretty good. So I'll work on it for next podcast. Every time I think I'm out. Hey, pull me back here. All right, so check me out on Twitter, at MovieFiend51. Chris is not on Twitter, as we've said before. Email me at topandunderprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Chris is on email, but that remains classified. Dark web only. <laughs> and the website is topandunderproject.com. We'll be back in two weeks with any given Sunday. Till then, thank you and good night. If you ain't first, you're last. And that, as they say, is that.